hid itself away in a shrubbery behind the gardens, with an idle handle that was never turned, and a lazy rope so rotten that the pail had broken away from it and had fallen into the water. A noble place, inside as well as out, a noble place. A house in which you incontinently lost yourself if ever you were so rash as to attempt to penetrate its mysteries alone. A house in which no one room had any sympathy with another. Every chamber running off at a tangent into an inner chamber, and through that down some narrow staircase leading to a door, which, in its turn, led back into that very part of the house from which you thought yourself the furthest. A house that could never have been planned by any mortal architect, but must have been the handiwork of that good old builder, Time, who, adding a room one year, and knocking down a room another year, toppling down a chimney coeval with the Plantagenets, and setting one up in the style of the Tudors, shaking down a bit of Saxon wall, allowing a Norman arch to stand here, throwing in a row of high, narrow windows in the reign of Queen Anne, and joining on a dining-room after the fashion of the time of Hanoverian George I, to a refectory that had been standing since the conquest, had contrived in some eleven centuries to run up such a mansion as was not elsewhere to be met with throughout the county of Essex. Of course, in such a house there were secret chambers— the little daughter of the present owner, Sir Michael Audley, had fallen by accident upon the discovery of one. A board had rattled under her feet in the great nursery where she played, and on attention being drawn to it, it was found to be loose, and so removed, revealed a ladder, leading to a hiding-place between the floor of the nursery and the ceiling of the room below. A hiding-place so small, that he who had hid there must have crouched on his hands and knees, or lain at full length, and yet large enough to contain a quaint old carved oak chest, half filled with priests' vestments, which had been hidden away, no doubt, in those cruel days when the life of a man was in danger, if he was discovered to have harbored a Roman Catholic priest, or to have mass said in his house. The broad outer moat was dry and grass-grown, and the laden trees of the orchard hung over it with gnarled, straggling branches that drew fantastical shadows upon the green slope. Within this moat there was, as I have said, the fish-pond, a sheet of water that extended the whole length of the garden, and bordering which there was an avenue called the lime-tree walk, an avenue so shaded from the sun and sky, so screened from observation by the thick shelter of the overarching trees, that it seemed a chosen place for secret meetings or for stolen interviews, a place in which a conspiracy might have been planned, or a lover's vow registered with equal safety, and yet it was scarcely twenty paces from the house. At the end of this dark arcade there was the shrubbery, where, half buried among the tangled branches and the neglected weeds, stood the rusty wheel of that old well of which I have spoken. It had been of good service in its time, no doubt, and busy nuns have perhaps drawn the cool water with their own fair hands, but it had fallen into disuse now, and scarcely anyone at Audley Court knew whether the spring had dried up or not. But sheltered as was the solitude of this lime-tree walk, I doubt very much if it was ever put to any romantic uses. 
Often in the cool of the evening, Sir Michael Audley would stroll up and down, smoking his cigar, with his dogs at his heels, and his pretty young wife dawdling by his side. But in about ten minutes the baronet and his companion would grow tired of the rustling limes and the still water, hidden under the spreading leaves of the water-lilies, and the long green vista with the broken well at the end, and would stroll back to the drawing-room, where my lady played dreamy melodies by Beethoven and Mendelssohn, till her husband fell asleep in his easy-chair. Sir Michael Audley was fifty-six years of age, and he had married a second wife three months after his fifty-fifth birthday. He was a big man, tall and stout, with a deep, sonorous voice, handsome black eyes, and a white beard, a white beard which made him look venerable against his will, for he was as active as a boy, and one of the hardest riders.